Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'll do the same. Good afternoon. I'm going to sit here. It's, uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, chair this session. My name is uh, Martin Bauer. Uh, I'm a, a psychologist uh, with an interest in uh, conspiratorial uh, ideas, conspiratorial mentality. Uh, I work on uh, science and technology issues, public opinion in relation to scientific controversies. I'm happy to chair this session. I will say very little. Uh, but I'm very pleased to see there are a lot of people coming this afternoon for an interesting topic uh, at this uh, event at the LSE. Uh, can I just, as a matter of housekeeping, ask you to switch off the telephones? Uh, I think that's what I need to do. I also need to uh, announce that we have a hashtag. If anybody wants to comment, LSE Festival, uh, New World uh, Disorder. Now, without further ado, let me introduce the, the speakers this afternoon. We will have a, a kind of three, te, three impulse uh, talks, 10, 15 minutes, and then obviously in the usual way, open up for discussion, question and answers. Uh, we have three uh, speakers in order of uh, appearance. Uh, Erika Lagalis, uh, a sociologist and anthropologist uh, who has written a book on uh, conspiratorial uh, mentality in relation uh, uh, to anarchism. She will uh, later on uh, sign that book uh, outside. Erika has been uh, working on good politics, uh, that's her dissertation, uh, property, intersectionality, and making the anarchist self, a study in social life of the intersectionality concept within contemporary anarchist social movements. She also has just published this book, which I mentioned, it's called Occult Features, Occult Features of Anarchism with Attention to the conspiracy of kings and the conspiracy of peoples. Which concerns, among other things, the relationship of left politics, clandestine fraternities, and the New Age movement in the 19th century. So kind of a focus on conspiratorial mentalities in the 19th century. She will open up later on uh, our discussion. Our second speaker is a colleague in psychology, uh, Bradley Franks, a psychologist with a background in social psychology, cognitive science, and a particular interest in evolutionary psychology. Uh, recent interest integrates these three areas in how people experience a sense of individual and joint agency. Uh, a view of conspiracy theories as quasi-religious understanding that have an evol evolutionary underpinning uh, emerges from this interest. He will uh, unfold this argument as the second speaker. The third speaker is Matthias Pelkmans, from the anthropology department. He's obviously an anthropologist who has done extensive ethnographic research at the intersection of religion and politics in the Caucasus and Central Asia. I think, would, be, would that be called now the, the Silk Road area? Sure, yeah. Sure. Silk Road area. <laughs> uh, his recent work has focused on the instability of knowledge, as can be seen from his book titled Fragile Conviction and Ethnographies of, du Ethnographies of Doubt. And is, central, uh, in, uh, and is central to his writing on conspiracy theory. So this uh, ethnography of doubt, he will introduce us in his uh, impulse speak. Now, just to introduce or to bring a little bit of uh, scene to this afternoon, this is just a, a little sign-up of our work, to, uh, a number of papers, and uh, Erika's book that will be seen uh, later on. Um, uh, Matthias' uh, papers and uh, Brady Frank has been spearheading uh, group of research on this uh, conspiratorial mentality. 
let me just put up a, a graph which uh, I taken from uh, what's it called again? Um, Ngram Viewer. Ngram Viewer. This is a kind of a Google service, uh, a million scan books, and if you ever wanted to be curious about a certain keyword having a certain trajectory or frequency or salience over the last 200 years in, uh, in Western books, mainly English, you can do that very easily. At the top you can see the word conspiracy uh, as it appears over the last 200 years since, 1900, since 1800. There seemed to be a kind of a decline of concern about conspiracy, at least reflected in book titles, stabilizing from maybe about 1920 onwards. Uh, one might call this the period of fears of conspiracies between 1800 and 1900. And the lower graph, if you change the keyword to conspiracy theory, either plural or single, you can see this is a concern that emerges maybe from the 1960s, 1980s onwards to a much lower frequency than conspiracies themselves, because at the top graph you see both conspiracies and conspiracy theories at the same time, and you can see that the conspiracies really don't come up very much. So we're dealing here with a kind of a, a, a linguistic phenomenon or a, a book title phenomenon that is very prominent in recent years, and probably that's the reason why we are coming here uh, to talk about that. One could say a fear of conspiracies has, has been replaced by a fear or a panic of conspiracy theories, in that sense. As you can see here, the turning or the takeoff of this concern. Now let me uh, make one more comment or two, uh, on conspiracy as a historical fact and fiction. Clearly, conspiracies exist and they have a certain significance. Uh, myself, I'm Swiss by origin. I grew up on a famous conspiracy uh, on the Rutli, as it's called, a conspiracy against feudal overlords. It's a foundation myth of a whole nation. It supposedly happened in 1307, where these three characters, Werner Stauffacher, Arno von Melchstein, Walter Fürst, in secrecy met in a place that is still a kind of a sacred place of the nation, where the National Independence Day is celebrated every year. Also, this only happened probably since about 1804, so it's a kind of a late invention of an earlier uh, significant event. We can also go to the theatre and we rehearse conspiracies uh, of Brutus against Caesar, as uh, dramatized by Shakespeare in 1599, and we contemplate the ambivalence of a republic conspiracy against the hubris of an imperial crown. Or 5th of November, remember, remember, uh, 1605, Guy Fawkes, the gunpowder plot, I, th I think is probably the English equivalent of the Swiss Rutlich War, but in a different way, what is here is not a conspiracy of the nation, but a conspiracy against the nation. Uh, also, some people might say see, it might have been a, a setup of the counter-espionage, who knows. Or another way where fact and fiction might meet is this famous uh, or this tragic murder of uh, Italian politician Aldo Moro uh, on the 7th of May 1978. And apparently this can be, or some people argue, can be traced to a secret uh, operation called Gladio, which was uh, prepared by NATO, to, uh, to have, eventuality, have things in place uh, in eventuality of an uh, approachment between the Democrazia Cristiana and the Communist Party uh, at that time. And in that, indeed, Aldo Moro was working on something like that, and some people would say he had to die for that. Or, even more to reality, we can remember, we can remind ourselves of 
Machiavelli, who offers a very short, maybe 10, 15 uh, page blueprint of how to successfully conspire, uh, what to take into account, uh, not to fail in this effect, uh, this attempt. So clearly, conspiracy theories involve separating fact from fiction, which might not be so easy, as by example show. Uh, spooks or secret services might worry about something like a false negative. Missing the conspiracy behind the events when there is one. On the other hand, in public discourse, we might worry about false positives, conspiracy theories where there is only uh, something like a cock-up. Now, I cannot uh, end, uh, or I cannot hesitate <laughs> to put up this uh, graphic of the world conspiracy, uh, not least because the LSE figures in this particular place. It figures here at the edge of the universe next to the British Psychic Society. <laughs> but I do understand the foundation of the LSE was closely related to the psychical uh, society at some point. So interesting to see. This is a kind of the back of the envelope. You also find the clean version. Of, and that's also the Fabian Society and the New School for Social Research. And this is a clean version of, of exactly the same, which looks more scientific. Uh, it's done by a, by a graph theory. But it's exactly the same thing. You can see here the LSE and so on. Uh, I was, I was thinking, I was curious uh, how academic institutions compare to the LSE, and I found another one which very much centers on the Tavistock uh, in 1921. I didn't follow this up. But this is very easy to find under Google conspiracy, and then you go to images, uh, and you find such kinds of representations. I thought this might be uh, useful for us to be aware of. Now, let us go. There are three short talks from our speakers. Then we might have comments between the speakers. Let's see how this goes questions from the audience, and uh, if I have to come in, I might have my own questions, but maybe I, I hesitate on that. And then we end, and then there might be meeting the speakers. Okay, please, Erica, uh, your turn. Thank okay. you very much. I like your graphs. I'm going to have to get them from you later. Shall I put them up? Yeah, let's leave that okay. one up. That one's fun. <laughs> that one's my favorite, I think. Um, okay, here we go. So, okay, so Conspiracy Theory as Truth, right? Full House, because it's a fun title. Um, it's obviously a provocative title. Uh, there's a certain tension inherent in the title, right? Because often when we call something a conspiracy theory, what we're trying to say is that it's not true. A conspiracy theorist is not something we tend to call ourselves. It's one of these phrases like hipster. You use it to talk about other people that you don't like or... Uh, when you want to insult them. Um, and yet, not every idea that has ever been called a conspiracy theory is necessarily wrong. Um, and it's not wrong for people who are not, you know, people who aren't academics to try and theorize why the world is messed up is not a bad thing, even if uh, they come up with some answers that would be different than mine or, or some answers that are legitimately disturbing. Um, you know, some theories are wrong, um, and when they are wrong, uh, our job as academics or just people, I would say, is to intervene, um, not laugh or look down our noses, but to try to intervene in some way. This is why I've written uh, the book I did. I've got to plug the book. It's being sold outside, right? So, um, but um, 
it's about you know this, the real history, the legitimate history, so to speak, of the Illuminati and how 19th century socialism really did or did not have to do with Freemasonry and questions like this, um, which I wrote because I do feel, in my experience, it is worth engaging, uh, trying to engage people in conversation about these things. There are people, there are academics, um, who act like anyone who would believe in a conspiracy theory is necessarily stupid, like straight up, they'll use that word. Um, and, but you know, it's also the academics that can be pretty stupid um, in the sense of, you know, writing elite, inaccessible, obscure texts and languages that no one can read, that you have to download for 20 quid, and then being surprised when people go to educate themselves on YouTube instead. I mean, obviously, right? Come on. Um, you know, and then looking down their noses, you know. And some lefty activists, which is the world that I'm coming from, um, also make a similar kind of mistake uh, sometimes, if I may. Um, I'll, I'll tell a story very briefly of how I came to this topic. Uh, I was part of a Zapatista solidarity collective back in Montreal, where I'm from. Um, this is about 10, uh, more than 10 years ago now, 2006. Um, and Zapatistas are indigenous rebels in Mexico. We can't go into that too much, but anyway, we were a collective, part, partly Quebecois people, partly Mexican, mostly university students, arranging uh, film screenings, fundraising for political prisoners, uh, st stuff like that. And it comes out one day after our collective meeting that some of the people in the group think that the world is run by Illuminati Freemason Jews. I was like, oh, okay. And I had never, I had never heard this theory of history before. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. And I was like, oh my, really? Okay. Um, what are you reading? Tell me, what is this? And I started to have a debate with them. And it, it didn't, it, it went on kind of on and off for a number of months, this conversation that we had. And um, in the process, I did manage to change some of their minds. They, did, they didn't, want to let go of the idea that there was probably men meeting, you know, things going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about or they weren't telling us. Didn't want to let go of that idea, but they did let go of the idea that they were all Jewish. Um, <laughs> which, you know, they were like, okay, they're Christian, they're Jewish, they're Muslim, they're different religions, but they're all, they're all capitalists. I'm like, okay, I mean, that's reasonable enough. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Um, okay. Um, you know, and so, I mean, I say this because there's, there's a certain stereotype of the conspiracy theorists, you know, they're, they're working class, they're uneducated, they're white, they're racist, they're this, they're that, and you know, oftentimes this all may be true, but the people um, that I first heard the conspiracy theory from uh, were, were university students, middle class, people of color involved in an anti-capitalist collective. So, um, you know, that's, I think, relevant. Um, and. In, it was after this experience, anyway, that in about 2006, the early years of YouTube, that I started paying attention to this. Once it sort of came to my attention, I started seeing it everywhere. I was, um, I was in these collectives because I had been an activist for years, but I had also started to do a PhD research project, so I was also like thinking as a researcher at this time. And um, it was around this time that the 9-11 Truth Movement was a big deal, and there started to be people that would show up at the activist meetings who would want to talk about 9-11, and they were getting turned away um, as, you know, truthers, like, oh, these truthers, you know, they don't have a good analysis, and uh, you get rid of them. And I thought, well, okay, I mean, you know, 9-11 isn't my favorite topic either, but, like, 
isn't this what we want? Don't we want people showing up to meetings? Don't we want the movement to be bigger than 15 people? You know, um, but you know, and, what, and what's going to happen if we just turn everyone away? Like, where are they going to go? Where is that going to go? That might not go anywhere good, right? And about 10, 15 years later, we can maybe see like. You know, for every, at this point, for every proper leftist we have, we've got about a thousand, you know, conspiracy buffs um, joining right-wing militias, voting for Donald Trump, whatever. So at this point, any kind of practical intervention we try and make into the whole Illuminati cult thing is a bit late in the game, but um, still very much worthwhile and important, I think. And I think that's part of the reason why I and my colleagues are involved in uh, research on conspiracy theory because we feel that as social scientists it is somewhat our responsibility to try and bring something useful to this really practical political problematic um, so uh, where am I yeah so here's I'm gonna give some examples okay uh, with, you know that being said here's some examples of what it might look like to think like a social scientist approaching conspiracy theory okay and this is not exhaustive by any means but it's some some Thoughts. Okay. So first, I think we should, uh, Matthias talks about this as well. First, I think we should notice how the phrase is used, noticing um, that how and when it gets applied often has as much to do with who is speaking as what is being said. So if I'm a professor and I want to talk about, you know, CIA intervention in Latin America or something, that's perfectly fine because I'm a Latin Americanist and I have the authority to do so. Um, but if I'm a truck driver and I say the same thing, I might get tossed off as a crazy conspiracy theorist. So what is that about? Um, the fact is when we talk about conspiracy theory, we're always talking about social class. It's a, it's a way of euphemizing questions of social class. And so I think that um, we just have to be self-critical and always aware that that's going on when we talk about conspiracy theory. Okay, number two. Um, as social scientists, I think we should be able to notice and draw out certain valid social commentaries from conspiracy theories, even the ones we find very wacky, um, are racist or disturbing, okay, um, for the sake of encouraging potential um, anti-capitalist sentiments, you know, versus fascist ones, you know, a lot of these things could go in either direction. Here's an example, I, I got an example, and I wrote this out, forgive me, okay, okay. I wrote this part out. Okay, so those of us who've uh, watched enough YouTube, okay, we know that many videos tell stories of uh, Knights Templar finding secret treasure under Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem during the Crusades, with Illuminati-controlled Freemasons later using it to collapse the great world religions into one big banking tradition in the name of Lucifer. <laughs> okay, so this, this story certainly does differ greatly, okay, in exposition from the one told by, let's say, Karl Polanyi in The Great Transformation, uh, wherein global elites and others following in suit forsake traditional allegiances in the great project of modern banking born of collusion, capitalism, and war. Social scientists will always prefer to highlight systemic forces rather than the whimsy of a few powerful knights and Freemasons, not to mention a few members of the Rothschild family as per the prevalent anti-Semitic version. The popular story is much more allegorical than the academic account. Yet it shouldn't take too much imagination to see how the conspiracist narrative differs from orthodox academic accounts more in form than in content, and therefore how some conspiracy buffs could arguably become interested in anti-capitalism instead of fascism, let's say, if only we made the effort to engage 
them in constructive dialogue. Even the lizard thing makes certain sense when you think of the long-standing cultural tradition of talking about like the blue-blooded aristocracy, right? I mean, in some way, these things are allegorical. Um, okay, three, as social scientists, I think we should be in a good position to stand back and say, okay, maybe this idea that all power in the world is organized into exactly one very pointy pyramid is a bit uh, exaggerated. Okay, it is, it's not very realistic. Um, but it is true that there are many very pointy pyramids, you know, plural, contested, multiple, you know, all over the place, uh, institutional regimes, social hierarchies, um, and the people on top of these pyramids are usually vying to stay there, whether or not they admit it to themselves or not. And, you know, working class people aren't wrong if they feel the professional ruling classes are conspiring against them. I don't think we can actually say that that's wrong. Um, we can debate, if you like. Um, number four, and I'll stop here, because um, we do want to give you guys a chance to pick our brains um, afterwards. Okay, so another final example of a good social science take on this issue, I think, is to think, okay, what do we even mean by conspiracy theory? What is the difference, if anything, between social theory, which is marked good, and conspiracy theory, which is marked bad. Um, social theory has this focus on forces and structures, generally. Right? And conspiracy theory wants to bring our attention to specific individuals. Um, we might say that social scientists prefer like a structural versus voluntarist theory of history. If you're academics, we'd speak in those terms. Um, but you know, it's also true that both things are true. Like people in the professional class, they do have some amount of agency. They're not, you know, they we are not mere pawns of institutional logic and discourse. You know, academics often like to talk about how oppressed people have lots of agency. Um, even people that are very oppressed by multiple intersecting axes of oppression, you know, they still have tons of agency. Heaven forbid we say they don't have agency. Um, and yet professionals don't necessarily like to think about how they or we also have certain amount of agency and existential power in the, our lives and in our professional lives. And arguably more um, power to affect institutional processes and outcomes than the janitor. But, you know, maybe we don't like to talk about that because then we can't blame, you know, sexism and white supremacy on the bad working class janitor, which, of course, like most people like to do. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I'll end with this last sort of provocative suggestion, which is just that maybe white collar elites can actually learn something from the very structure of conspiracy theory if they read it in this way, you know, that, that they are or we are in some ways complicit with power insofar as we are part of the professional or managerial class. Uh, so um, I'll leave it there because um, I want everyone else to have a chance to speak and have a chance for questions and so you can pick our brains. Just don't ask us what really happened to you building seven because we don't actually know and um, <laughs> even though we are part of you know the great conspiracy thank you thank you Elka for a, a fascinating talk in which um, you address a completely different set of issues from the ones I want to address which is rather nice um, Perfect. so we're not in competition I want to um, offer a couple of speculations about the nature of conspiracy theories from a psychological perspective and what I want to suggest is a couple of slightly provocative theses. 
The first thesis is this, that um, if we speak to people that believe in conspiracy theories, rather than speculating from the outside, if we talk to them, um, engage them in interviews and so forth, then we get an understanding of the content that they believe in. And when we do that, we get a sense that maybe their beliefs in conspiracies are a bit like other people's beliefs in religions. And what I'll be suggesting is that conspiracy theories are roughly quasi-religious in their form and content. It's an idea that came up in collaborative work with my colleague Martin Bauer and um, Adrian Bangert, who's in the audience there too. Um, so if I get things wrong, you can address your, my, your questions to them rather than to me, if that's, how, that's possible. That's my first thesis. The second thesis is this, that um, when we look at the nature of conspiracy theories, we can see that they really involve a kind of important set of ways of thinking about intergroup relations, about how one group should relate to other social groups, and how we decide how to interpret the behaviours of groups that are in power relative to groups that aren't in power. And I'm going to suggest that this has deep evolutionary underpinnings. So I'm going to say that um, conspiracy theories aren't a modern um, epiphenomenon. They're not the fluff which grows on the edges of social media. They, in fact, can be traced back to um, deep prehistory. And when we start to think of things in this way, we start to shift our orientation on conspiracy theories in the following sense. A great deal of work in the psychology of conspiracy theories has been based upon the idea that we should be looking for individual qualities of people that believe in conspiracy theories, which might make them more susceptible to doing so. So we look for personality variables. We look for a tendency towards paranoia or schizotypy and things of that kind. I'm going to say, well, yeah, that's interesting. That's important. But perhaps what's more important is the possibility that evolution has designed our minds, all of our minds, to be possibly conspiratorial. So everybody in this room now has the ability, the tendency, to be possibly a conspiracy theorist. Let it sink in. Because <laughs> this comes back to a lot of Erica's points about how we position the notion of a conspiracy theory and cons conspiracy theorist against ideas of status and power, and how we in some sense vilify or critique those who believe in conspiracy theories. Well, look, we're all the same under the skin. We're all possible conspiracy theorists. That's what I'll be saying. So that's the story for today. So, first of all, conspiracy theories are quasi-religious. What, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is a rather simple point, that if we look at religious beliefs around the world, look at the contents of those beliefs, we see that they, they vary massively. Some religions have one god, some have 35 gods, some have gods which are punitive, some have gods which are more friendly, etc., etc. And indeed, the US Supreme Court apparently allows a defense uh, based on the notion of a functional religion. So it's not the content of the religion that matters, it's the function that the beliefs play in your life that qualifies it as a religion. And that's the line I'll be taking for the moment, to say that what matters for conspiracy theories is that, yeah, there are some ideas which look a bit like religions, but also they have the function of religion in many people's lives. So... What is the most important function of religious beliefs and therefore of conspiracy theories? Well, it's making sense of things. It's 
working out what is going on in this big, bad, dangerous world, and especially trying to make sense of things which are threatening or destabilizing, or in some sense relate to issues of mortality, um, ontological questions, and so forth. And that's precisely where we see conspiracy theories springing up. We see them springing up in terms of the death of major celebrities or major public figures. We see them springing up in terms of 9-11, 7-7, major things which threaten our continuous existence in the, in the lives that we want to lead. Conspiracy theories help us to make sense of these kinds of events. And many people in psychology say that, well, what happens is that we have a big event, so we need a big explanation. That's really it in some sense. But when we begin to scratch away at this and ask people who believe in conspiracy theories what exactly is going on in their beliefs, they also very often advert to the idea of big agents. These big... Martin had the... Um, these ones. The Illuminati, for example, or the House of Rothschild, or the Order. These shadowy agents that have massively important control and agency, power, dynamism in the world, far beyond that of ordinary people that believe in the conspiracy theories. In exactly the same way as people who believe in religions position deities and demigods above themselves in terms of agency, control and power. We're, getting, we're seeing exactly the same interplay here between, as it were, my lack of agency and their super-agency, their hyper-agency, in some sense. As a consequence of this, as a consequence of explaining major destabilizing and worrying events in terms of the behavior of discrete groups of this kind, what happens psychologically is we take diffuse anxiety, stress, uncertainty, a sense of of being displaced and unhappy, and we transmute that into focused anti-group aggression. We don't quite know who the Illuminati are or the Order are, but we know who their middle managers are. We know who does the work for them. So we can aggress towards them, we can be contemptuous towards them. So we don't know how to attack the big guys, but we know how to attack the middle order guys, psychologically at least. So we take diffuse anxiety, and make it into focused intergroup anger and threat and prejudice. But when we speak to conspiracy theorists, we also find something else which is very similar to religious beliefs, and it says that for many people who believe in religion, there's a leap of faith. There's an acceptance that the data don't quite take you all the way to believing in your God. There's a, a kernel of uncertainty or doubt in your belief in some sense. And exactly the same holds for conspiracy theorists. Many of them will say, yep, um, I know that you think I'm crazy, but I believe this. I know that other people would say this, but... And so they're very much, they, they position themselves as people who are on a quest in some way, people who are trying to um, understand the world and um, gain data about the world, when that data is very often hidden from them. So there's a close analogy there as well in terms of that sense of when we come to believe in conspiracy theories, when we come to believe in religions, we make a leap beyond the observable evidence to something quite different. 
And connected to this is the broad idea that conspiracy theorists clearly deny the term conspiracy theorists. This is part of what the game is. But they will say, I'm a researcher. I'm on a quest for truth. And who, who believes in religion, isn't on a quest for truth? And the final parallel is between the connections between CT or conspiracy theory believers and um, those who, as it were, sell the conspiracy theories, the leaders uh, of conspiracy theory literature or the conspiracy theory world. I think this um, diagram here is probably connected to some of the work of David Icke. Is this right? Um, I think the, the next one might show the next one. If David Icke was there, there'd be lizards at the top. There would be. Well, they're kind of hiding. You can see their, their tails wagging around here somewhere. Yeah. Um, they, David Icke is a wonderful, wonderful is an important word here, interesting is a better word, is an interesting um, promulgator of conspiracy theories. And um, he has a wonderful website which is full of um, descriptions of the kinds of conspiracies that he believes are going on. Um, he fills Wembley Arena, the O2 Arena, regularly. Um, so his audience is rather larger than ours. <laughs> but conspiracy theorists have in their minds these conspiracy theory leaders. These people to whom they defer, um, who dispense the truth and the wisdom, who ha have access to the higher um, sources of information that the believers themselves don't have. In exactly the same way as religions have priests and so forth. It's an analogy. I'm not saying that if you believe in a Christian God, you therefore believe in conspiracy theories. And I'm not saying if you believe in, in conspiracy theory, you therefore believe in religion. But I'm saying that the, the kinds of beliefs that operate within conspiracy theories function for those individuals in the same way as religious beliefs function for those who believe in religion. So that's my first controversial thesis. Um, the second one may be even more controversial, which is to say that conspiracy theories are as old as human social relationships. What I mean by this is simply that as far as we can, if we can go back in time, imagine we could tra travel back in time along with David Icke and, and um, his lizard people. If we do that and we look at the way in which human intergroup relations developed, maybe 200,000 years ago was the first inklings of larger tribes and intertribe relations and so forth. In that history, the most important set of questions concern how we can decide which tribes we can work with and which tribes we can't. How do you do that? We're trying to work out who's a good collaborator, who is credible, who is reliable, who is trustworthy. And you just don't know. So the most important question for intergroup relations is, what is going on in the minds of people who aren't members of my group? And that is a first step towards thinking, hey, they have something over on us. They have ideas about us that we don't understand. They can control our lives in some way. So this begins to open up the possibility that we are beginning in our ancient intertribe relations, already thinking about the credibility of another group relative to us. 
And in particular, the idea of trying to work out, for example, who their gods are. If you know the name of the other tribe's god, you can invoke that god and control it. So the idea then is conspiracy theories are just a spin-off from the need to patrol the boundaries of groups and the need to try to work out whether some groups are worth collaborating with and whether other groups are untrustworthy. That's all they are. The more complex a society that the groups engage in, the more complex the conspiracy theories become. Now, this is big speculation, quite clearly. Um, and any evolutionary account of any faculty in, in, in the human mind requires data, requires evidence. Do we have evidence of this? Well, yes and no. We can't travel back 10,000, 20,000 years and have a chat with our ancestors. It doesn't work like that. But we can look for the kinds of data that are available today and the standard forms of data which we need to be able to substantiate a claim that some psychological process is more or less innate, are as follows. We need evidence from child development. If something emerges early in child development, it's a good candidate for being innate, roughly. We need evidence from cross-cultural studies. If something emerges across all cultures that we know about, it's a good candidate for being innate. And thirdly, um, does it emerge as, as far back in history as we can see things, as we have records? If it does, it's also a good candidate. This isn't perfect evidence. It's part of telling a story. Okay? And if we look at child development, we see, yep, young children, age three or four, etc., are obsessed with agency. Agency is a hallmark of, of conspiracy theories. They have an intentionality bias. They think that any accidental event has been caused by some agent of some kind. They see agents everywhere, which is a paraphrase of having a conspiracy theory, I think. Children the ages of three or four um, are incredibly discriminating in terms of the kinds of testimony they will accept, who they will believe things from when they give them reports about the way the world is. If they can't see it for themselves, they rely upon other people's report. And they're very discriminating about who they trust. They don't trust outgroup members, quite simply. They trust in-group members. They're not trained to do this. No one tells them not to do this. These are kids aged two or three. So the, the desire to um, assess or evaluate the reliability of other people's statements and the focus on intentionality arises very, very early in development. And then the obsession with what other groups think, even more so, arises a bit later. Kind of arises maybe the age 10 or 11 when kids are positioning their own social group relative to other social groups, trying to work out where their identity fits in and so forth. But there's a reliable trajectory that we know about across development for all these kinds of capacities. Uh, my chair is saying I should stop, so I'll give you two sentences on, on the other forms of data. So, cross-cultural data, yep. Conspiracy theories are everywhere as far as we know. And historically, well, what we seem to know is that um, if you look back at records from ancient Greece, ancient Rome, let's talk of conspiracy theories there. 
So conspiracy theories are not a novelty dreamt up in the modern age. They're part of our evolutionary armory for dealing with the social world. And that has one important implication, which is that um, if we want to address the problems of conspiracy theories, if we want to deal with them in a political sense, we're not going to be able to do that by trying to eradicate them. We can no more get rid of conspiracy theories than we can get rid of stereotypes or other ways of thinking that we don't like. We can attack their content, but not their existence. Um, different background. We can go back to No, why not? Why not? Why not? Just stay with this uh, wonderful uh, background. Um, right. So, so when academics talk about conspiracy theories, it's, it's a bit, I think, like academics talking about humor or talking about jokes. It takes the fun out of it. Uh, so, so I kind of apologize uh, for that. Uh, I will be uh, changing tech, uh, quite a different talk from the, the previous one. Um, put it very simply, you can think of the kind of the use value of conspiracy theorizing, the kind of the sense making, the, the role it plays in social interaction, etc. But you can also think about the, the, not the use value, but the truth value of, of conspiracy theorizing. And I will be focusing on the second, even though I think that they are very clearly related. Um, what I want to highlight in doing that is to, to kind of to think about the political dynamics of conspiracy theories, looking at how they behave in often very complex social fields. And, and lots can be said about that, um, but I will restrict myself to two aspects. First of all, how, how do we actually engage with conspiracy theories? What, what do we even understand? How do we understand them? What do we understand them to be? And second, how are conspiracy theories used in political projects and with what effects? And to start off, um, let me indeed show that everyone is a conspiracy theorist, including myself. And so let me offer a, a conspiracy theory that I personally happen to believe in. Um, Brexit is an elitist plot. <laughs> I won't have time to detail the specifics of this plot, which anyway you will probably be very familiar with, but anyway it, it posits that A, Brexit is less about mass resentment than about elite ideology, B, that this elite ideology has its aims to lower standards, to deregulate the economy and to facilitate state withdrawals such as to create a tax haven that will benefit the wealthy, and C, these aims were downplayed or even hidden from voters during the Vote Leave campaign, even though they, they motivated key players, including funders, uh, of that campaign. Now, I would argue that this example contains all the elements of a conspiracy theory. Brexit is an elitist plot is, obviously, a theory. It postulates an explanation of a phenomenon in the world. It also, obviously, entails a conspiracy because it posits that People, members of the elite, were colluding, they were hiding their intentions and their coordination in campaigning for Brexit. Um, finally, that, that therefore it is a conspiracy theory in the sense that it's an explanation which postulates that an event, that is an event that is at least a partly intended effect of activities that have been secretly planned and carried out by several actors. Still, calling this a conspiracy theory sounds very counterintuitive. And to some of you, it sounds, will sound flatly wrong. Uh, and depending on your own position and your political orientation, 
I might kind of hypothesize that this is because to you, perhaps Vexit is an elitist plot. It's not a conspiracy theory because it sounds too right. right? Um, <laughs> which basically suggests that you associate conspiracy theories with falsehoods. By definition, they are wrong. We only think of theories of conspiracy as conspiracy theories once we, we think of them as wrong. Perhaps the theory doesn't connect enough dots for you, right? Uh, um, uh, this is a limited theory of conspiracy, but it doesn't necessarily go all the way up and around uh, and above, which suggests perhaps that you, suggest that you associate conspiracy theories with taking one's suspicions too far. Perhaps also you don't think of it as a conspiracy theory because the people positing it, like me, are not your average paranoid conspiracists. Uh, well, maybe I am, but, but anyway. But they're, they're respectable people like your, yourselves, um, which suggests that you associate conspiracy theorizing with particular kinds of people. And I'm bringing this up for two reasons. First, of all the theories of that deal with conspiracy, we only think of some of these as conspiracy theories. This means that it's a constructed rather than a natural object. And so when we study conspiracy theories, we need to reflect on how we have constructed our object. Second, because the term conspiracy theory has so many negative connotations, as simply false, as overly, overly paranoid, as something that non-respectable people do, it also serves as a powerful label. To call some, something a conspiracy theory is to brand it as ridiculous. To call someone a, conspiracy, a conspiracist or a conspiracy theorist is to brand them as delusional. So, for people who are, so I would, I would suggest that the people, who are mo, the people who are most likely to recognize Brexit is an elitist plot as a conspiracy theory are first of all the elite Brexiters themselves. They will say that's, that's, that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Absolutely nonsense, it's not true, right? Um, and, and secondly, perhaps also those who are in favor of Brexit more generally. Let me, let me give two additional brief examples of the political implications of the, the constructed nature of conspiracy theory. And for many years, and I saw some students, so they know this, I asked, I asked my students to name a relatively recent conspiracy theory that had, part, that had had particularly large geopolitical effects. And they came up with all kinds of, of wonderful and very wacky theories, but not the one that I still think has been the most consequential one. The, the theory that Saddam Hussein secretly possessed weapons of mass dis destruction and was conspiring with Al-Qaeda to level attacks at the United States. This powerful conspiracy theory was dramatically displayed by Colin Powell in his address to the United Nations Security Council in early 2003, and it played an important legitimizing role in building the case for invading Iraq later that year. This theory was, you know, it intimated an elaborate conspiracy theory. Moreover, it, it was quite wacky, and those who saw his display in the, in the, in the council, which had all this kind of these visuals, etc., they will recognize that it was quite wacky. Um, and even after the theory turned out to be complete nonsense, many people continued to believe in it. Right? Still, it was rarely thought of as a conspiracy theory. Why? Because official accounts 
you know, kind of provided by governments or government officials, are less likely to be seen as conspiracy theories. We associate, associate such theories with the relatively powerless often. Moreover, although many people disagreed with Colin Powell's politics, he was nevertheless, nevertheless seen as a respectable, serious man, the opposite of how we kind of see a conspiracist. Right, recognizing uh, conspiracy theories is, I think, not a straightforward matter, and the same is true for using the label conspiracy theory to discredit a particular theory or opponent. First of all, you need to be powerful enough to make it stick. Right? Uh, governments are, of course, often, often powerful, and, um, uh, and they indeed kind of dismiss theories that allege a conspiracy as, as, as paranoid conspiracy theories. Think of, you know, kind of the fake moon landings, the supposed murder of Princess Diana, or theories regarding the 9-11 attacks and the collapse of the Twin Towers. The governments were, it was quite easy for them to kind of dismiss them as, you know, kind of conspiracy theories. Don't, don't even take them serious. But it is not always the case. And I think in that sense, it's a kind of a quite interesting that when you think about Donald Trump, he says all kinds of things. And he's constantly talking about the, the, the Russia allegations, right? But never ever has he labeled that a conspiracy theory. Why? Because he himself is too close to, to the label, as it were. Right? He, everyone kind of knows that in his, kind of in his trajectory, he has been kind of you know, launching all these conspiracy theories, theories about, about Obama, about uh, climate change being a hoax, about this and that. So kind of, you know, he cannot use this as a label to kind of discredit a theory because he is one of those theorists, let's say. Um, right. So anyway, I've argued that uh, the way we engage with theories of conspiracy is far from straightforward. We think of some but not all theories that allege conspiracy as conspiracy theories. And this is important because the label conspiracy theory is often used to discredit an inconvenient theory or to sideline an opponent. In that sense, the kind of a term has a perspectival quality, which is embedded in power relations, right? Brexit is, is, a, is an elitist plot. I should not call it a conspiracy theory because I kind of believe in it, but a Brexiter, he will call it a conspiracy theory, right? And it has this kind of this perspectival relational dimension to it. And I suggest that these relations of power have a range of characteristics. Conspiracy theorizing can play a role in challenging elite power, to voice suspicion about how the world works, and, and to question the role of elites. And some of those suspicions will be justified, others are not. But one big question, and I won't have time to kind of to go into it deeply, is how this change changes in the so-called post-truth era. Or more specifically, what happens when the most vocal conspiracists are not the subalterns, not the relatively powerless, but members of the elite themselves. And Trump is a particularly interesting figure in that regard. Right? He had already established himself as a conspiracy theorist in chief before he was elected. And actually his engagement, his mobilization of conspiracy theories, played a significant role in his ability to mobilize anti-establishment sentiment. So what happens when this conspiracist and his theories rise to the apex of power? There are basically two routes, I would suggest, but these can be combined in a variety of ways. The first route is that suspicion and mistrust 
continue to be directed towards the powers that be, but is now conceptualized as the enemy within, which in the case of the US would be the deep state. Uh, and this has the potential to lead to a form of generalized mistrust and doubt leading to chaos and uncertainty. And I would say perhaps some of these characteristics you see reflected in what's going on in the US at the moment. The other route is that suspicion and mistrust are increasingly directed outwards, projected onto certain segments of the population or onto foreigners. And obviously this is also something that we see reflected in what's going on in the US. If the first route produces chaos and uncertainty, the second route is meant to subject and exclude and potentially even worse. This obviously, I think, the kind of the combination of this is our is a current predicament and it's particularly conspicuous in the context of the United States. But it's, I think it's a predicament that is, is surfacing in other parts of the world as well. And that's where I would like to end. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have quite a few things on the table here. And uh, one of the nice things of doing a, an LSE festival is that colleagues at the LSE who don't know of, their, of each other's work meet. And that really happened to us. We didn't know each other. And we only met on, on, on the occasion preparing this. That's one of the nice uh, uh, events. Now, do colleagues want to comment on each other? Or shall we? I could say something if we want to go that Please. way. Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Eric. Okay. Um, um, yeah, actually following directly from what you said, Martin, is that this is, we met each other because of this event. Uh, I had proposed something about conspiracy theory and Martin and Bradley had as well. And, and then they came back to us and said, oh, you're from two different departments. You're pro proposing an event on the same topic. Why don't you do it together? And so that's why you see, you know, you can see perhaps there's a disciplinary uh, divide a little bit in how we're approaching it, right? The psychologists and the anthropologists are approaching this differently. And, uh, and so that being said, and uh, with uh, uh, great respect for my psychologist colleagues, I'm going to ask an anthropology question. I'm going to say, I want to know, Bradley, what you would say. Um, okay, so if conspiracy theory and religion can be lined up next to each other, and I'm willing to go with that idea, I want to know if you would think that belief in science would also line up with belief in religion and belief in conspiracy theory. What would, what, what would you do to, with that? Um, <laughs> it's one of those questions for which I need 24 hours notice. I, <laughs> I it's, it's not supposed to be an easy one, and it's not supposed to be one you can answer now, but it is, it's, it's a big one, it's, it's an elephant in the room, it's there, it's one that we all have to deal with, and so, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but it, it needs to be said. I think it's a great question. I, I would say that um, psychologically, um, there's probably not much difference. Um, how do we understand scientific um, phenomena? By deference to authority. Um, we, we understand that scientists seem to know a bit more than we do, etc., etc. Um, there are gaps in our knowledge. When my son, who's 13, asked me, um, uh, he's, I was, he was doing his homework yesterday um, on the cooling curve of stearic acid. What? Um, <laughs> so I looked it up on the internet and found out about it and so on, and I defer to these authorities in the same way as we do in terms of conspiracy theories and, and, um, and religion. So I think structurally in terms of the psychological processes, there's not a lot of difference. Um, clearly there are differences in terms of the, the pragmatic outcomes of these beliefs and whether believing in, 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 in science um, is more or less pernicious than believing in conspiracy theories or religion, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess. But I think that in terms of the psychology, there's not much difference. Um, but yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, what comes to mind uh, in this kind of uh, in this question whether whether science is a, is a form of belief? I mean, there are two things. One, uh, science can, uh, as scientism, uh, become like a religion. Sure. Which is a kind of seen as a, as a, as, a, as an exaggerated uh, 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 difference uh, to science as a source of knowledge and, and a unique source of knowledge. But then there's also the the tradition of science of of showing the limits of uh, intention attribution and focusing on processes. I suspect your your, your son has referred to a process, mm -hmm. another uh, homunculus at work. So there is this kind of idea of science trying to put the, li the limits to intentionality. But there is always a problem of where it stops, okay? where, where, where you can, whether you can eradicate it totally, would be my uh, an immediate comment. Any, any other comments, uh, colleagues? Well, uh, well the, my comment would be that exactly the same would be also true for people kind of who are theorizing about conspiracies, right? I mean, it's, it's only when, when it's kind of it becomes kind of very paranoid or kind of, you know, too much kind of contained within one kind of hermetically sealed logic that it becomes problematic, I would say. And in that sense, it's kind of a similar, similar uh, difference between, you know, kind of science and the science or like scientism, right? Mm. Uh, and, and, and we see kind of the same similar problem kind of reflected in relation to conspiracy theorizing. Yeah. Well, now maybe let's open, we have until quarter two, is this correct? We have a roaming microphone. Can we take some questions? I, can I ask maybe, could collect maybe three questions at a time? Uh, how shall I start? Go one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven. Do you have your... Uh, let's go, let's <laughs> to start with the, with the woman. Uh, woman okay. there, please. Right, so I was lucky enough to be in one of the first bands to play in Russia uh, during the period of the dissolution of the USSR. And um, I had grown up in America hearing that Russians were brainwashed by their media. But to my shock, the average 10-year-old Russian child knew more about world politics than your average university-educated American. And the reason, they told me, was because they don't believe their television, but Americans do. So I see conspiracy like gossip on the shop floor. If you work on the factory and you don't have access, mainstream media is like the press releases coming from head office. So the academic classes, with all due respect, are a little bit more akin to uh, middle management. So, um, you know, this idea that... Let me maybe think, think of a question. Yes, it's coming. <laughs> this idea that big world decisions should be made solely by the head, the academic classes, rather than the heart, <coughs> the people that get, have to go by instinct. Um, there seems to be an automatic assumption. Do you believe that the world should be run uh, just based on... The academics. Goodness, no. Oh, absolutely no, not. No. No, <laughs> should, should the world be run by academics? Uh, first question. Can we have a second one? I think there were a few hands in the middle there. Maybe gentlemen in the, in the gray, gray. So um, if uh, we're all capable of being a conspiracy theorist, which I think is a great idea, um, and conspiracy theory somehow assumes that there's some kind of hidden meaning, if we find ourselves uh, fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be on this uh, chart uh, here, does um, and we assume that conspiracy theory is 
you know, hiding some kind of uh, true agenda, and we know for a fact, we're on the chart, that it's not true, does transparency decrease the fear of, con of conspiracy theory, or does it only incite our imagination? That's, uh, well, good question. Transparency and conspiracy. One more question. Maybe a gentleman here in NAC, okay. NEC. Yeah. The lady in the back with the blonde hair put her hand up very first. She was very the very first, first one to put her hand first up. First for the next round. Yeah, okay. Guaranteed. Please, yeah. Yes. Um, if conspiracy theory is a kind of folk religion as opposed to an established religion, uh, is the decline in uh, organized religion related to the rise of conspiracy, because I saw that chart showing this takeoff in the 50s and 60s. Are they related? Is it kind of folk religion that's replacing organized religion? Can we leave it three questions, maybe colleagues? Sure. We take a few another one later on. Uh, who would like to answer? We have three questions. Should the world be run by academics? Uh, transparency, does it make any difference? Uh, and uh, is the emergence of conspiracy theory related to the decline of traditional religions, so to speak. If I can just a brief comment on the, the question about uh, transparency. I don't know. This is a great book, actually, which is, which is titled Transparency and Conspiracy. And one of the claims that it makes is that, that ironically, in an age of transparency, it seemed that the, kind of the level of conspiracy theorizing was going up. And the kind of one of the, some of the arguments that were made there, and I've contributed to that as well is that in a way what transparency does it moves the kind of the you know the extent of the visible further but that it can never make everything completely visible completely transparent so then people will continue to kind of to think about what is okay now we see more but we still don't know what's behind what is now visible and so if kind of transparency coincides actually for example with rising inequality or with other kind of societal problems then it may well that actually the, the kind of you know the transparency itself will be seen as somehow part of big conspiracy <laughs> to follow on that very briefly is that um, yeah the it is, in some ways, the idea, the, the modern political 20th century idea that we should, that people should know what's going on all the time. The fact that we don't is what makes us upset, so you can say that. And someone, an art historian the other day, I just haven't fully processed this myself, but he said, oh, have you thought about how, you know how conspiracy theory, the big spike on the graph, one of those spikes has to do with JFK, right? Because that was one of the first sort of big conspiracy theories that, one of the theories that was first talked about as a conspiracy theory on a really wide scale. And he said to me, you know, it's really, uh, it has to do with media. I mean, the only reason JFK was killed in the first place was because he had to be seen. It was, it was, a, it was for television, the way that, that, that parade was done. So there's something about um, media and being seen and transparency as like a defining ethic of like politics in our century that is really bound up with this somehow. I don't have the answers, but it's a really good question. Yeah. Could I come, come into this? Um, there's, um, from a psychological viewpoint, there's a, a well-known phenomenon in psychology called the inherence heuristic, which is the idea that we as human beings are always looking for things which are inherent to objects, to people, to events, to situations. We're always looking beyond the surface. We're looking for intentions, personalities, um, things beneath, beneath the surface. So when we, when we have more information about those things beneath the surface, we, do, we say, yeah, good. But then the, um, the boundary gets moved, as Matthew says. Uh, we look for more things even, even lower down beneath the surface. So 
I think transparency just shifts the goalposts. Absolutely. As far as should the world be run by academics, uh, no. of course not. No, I mean, in some ways you can see in a way that's what I was getting at. I was saying it in a kind of academic way. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, clear. No. And, and, no. I think even across disciplinary boundaries, we agree. Yeah, on we this. can definitely agree on that. That might, be, that might be for next year's festival. Should the run, world be run by academics? Oh, Let's take a second round. There was, I promised uh, the, 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 yes, the lady uh, there in the back, and then the gentleman here is... Thank you. So I'm interested in the policing of sanity, and I'm just wondering in terms of radicalization or people who have been seen as fundamentalists and have suscept are susceptible in some way to these overarching narratives about foreign policy, etc. How quickly they're ascribed a, a lone wolf or some sort of psychologically problematic um, label. And I just wonder what that means, both for the objects and the subjects, and what it means when we try and put medical labels on people who think things that are not what we think. Okay, thank you. Significance of labeling. Uh, yes, maybe gentlemen here. Yeah, uh, thank you all very much. Um, I am a Freemason who's a member of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and I've worked with the um, successor agency to the KGB in Ukraine and been on the grassy knoll, but my application to join the Illuminati was rejected. No reason was given. My question is, uh, follows on from, and by the way, grassy knoll, one gunman acting alone, a misfit, wasn't given his due credit and wanted to become famous, and that's it. But my question is, um, do you draw, are you able to draw any distinction between the real nutcases, who are the, more the religion ones, uh, who just simply have a viewpoint and will not be persuaded otherwise, and those who, depending on the subject, or gen generically, are susceptible to counter-argument. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> yeah. Distinction between moderate and heavy, please. I know if, if uh, some of you are, have done or know, you know, research done around this whole WikiLeaks thing. I was very fascinated by the fact that, you know, WikiLeaks and, and Julian Assange was, in my opinion, very much playing on this kind of conspiracy theory of, of, you know, now we're going to uncover with data, we're going to uncover how it really works, and kind of nothing came out. I mean, okay, a couple of people, you know, I don't know, you know, don't pay taxes, and, you know, so, but there was nothing of, of, you know, really conspiracy, like, you know, Angela Merkel is having an, a, a nuclear bomb at home, or, or something like this. <laughs> nothing came out, and, but somehow it didn't silence, so I don't know if there has been research done on this kind of, well, with data, with WikiLeaks, we can now solve all the conspiracy or the conspiracies because we're going to kind of clean it or so. There was research done or, or, or looked at it already. Okay, I think we have three questions that are okay for a round. Let me just repeat. We have the issue of policing of sanity and the significance of labeling medical terms coming into play. Is there a distinction between what I might call like a moderate and, 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 and a strong belief that is uh, impervious to, to evidence? And the third one, uh, maybe let me rephrase this, uh, WikiLeaks, was it hyped on, on conspiracy? Uh, yes, uh, was there any kind of fallout from it, but yeah. it showed up kind of as being almost nothing. 
Okay. I'll, I'll take this one please, first, if please. that's okay. Okay, so yeah, one of the thing, questions that's informed uh, the research I've been doing is very similar to the first question. I was, have this in the sense that um, I'm concerned, and what I can see, I haven't, and I haven't done the sort of full ethnographic longitudinal kind of research to be able to prove this, but it's a hypothesis and a disturbing one, that by calling all the... Every conspiracist, everyone who could possibly be called a conspiracy theorist, calling them crazy, whether or not they're moderate or strong, let's say, to use those things, um, can actually serve to kind of consolidate a group identity among those so labeled, right? So someone who, you know, um, might be kind of, you know, not trusting of the CIA and asking questions about, you know, Noriega and, you know, interference in the CIA in Latin America, or someone who asks a question, which is not a bad question, like, you know, are these vaccines good for my children? Like, the question itself is not bad, you know? And then people who are, you know, and then people on the other end uh, sort of the spectrum who, whose questions are quite different, I think, which are like, so are, you know, bankers lizards or aliens or both? You know, like that's a, that's a, that's a, for me, that's a kind of different kind of question. Um, and to kind of lump all of these people in the same category and denigrate them all equally as crazy conspiracy theorists, well, you might find that the people who originally were just concerned about the CIA meddling in politics or vaccines are now getting closer to, oh, we lost our great uh, scheme, or getting closer to ideas about the Illuminati and lizards and everything else because they've been kind of put in that category and now they're feeling like defensive about it and they're going to you know, find others who have been so labeled and, and have sympathy with them and just for these very simple social psychological reasons you're creating. So I feel like we've, we are, you know, people who make fun of conspiracy theory have, got, have participated in creating this scenario. And I think maybe what I said addresses a little bit what you were saying as well. And I do think that there are, you know, I, the example that I used when I gave my talk was about someone who, who did engage with com in conversation with me about it. And they weren't, you know, they, they were still concerned that there was stuff going on behind the scenes, but they let go of the fact that they were all Jewish. And that was good enough for me then. And I think that that's, that's can be... But I have also talked to other people where, like, no matter what I say, you know, and these are the people that I think of when you when you were talking, Bradley. There are people that seem to have just very, uh, a very high degree of, like, faith in a in an idea that no matter what I say, I'm not going to shake them. And in fact, I just kind of, you know, I've become one of the establishment elite and, uh, you know, and that's it. It's, I just dig myself deeper. So, um, yeah, I'll stop. Can I follow on from that? I, I think that, um, please do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the issue of the labeling is vitally important. And in some of our research where um, one of our PhD students has, has interviewed people who profess belief in conspiracy theories and, and he had a very difficult time in getting access to these people because they don't want to be talked to by people who are on this board, quite clearly. <laughs> We're part of the problem rather than part of the solution for them. And um, he found that um, people would say that when they were first developing their beliefs in conspiracies, they found they had to draw their social circles more narrowly. Um, friends who were friends ceased to be friends. They couldn't talk about conspiracy ideas with their family. And so they found themselves becoming more lonely and then reaching out through the internet, um, through meetup groups and so forth, and forming impromptu social groupings um, to uh, enable them to discuss these kinds of ideas. Um, so uh, what this suggests is that maybe the, one of the stereotypes of conspiracy theory believers as, um, as lonely people, men sitting in their bedrooms with tinfoil hats on, etc., um, it's not really true. Um, the people who 
want to be part of social groups, social movements, etc., see themselves as socially and politically engaged, but don't feel that the current climate allows them to express that or engage properly. So I think that kind of links to two of the points that were raised, that um, we, when you talk to people that believe in conspiracy theories, they're far more nuanced, far more um, aware of how the world sees them, and far more aware of the implications of labels on their behaviour than we are on the, the implications of our labelling of them. Well, in, in relation to, to a question that I don't have a good answer to, which is kind of how to distinguish between, let's say, moderate and kind of more extreme conspiracy theories, it's, that, that is actually one of, one of the big difficulties, the large difficulties, and, and the kind of the labeling that we have been talking about kind of tends to then kind of associate any theory of conspiracy as a kind of an extreme version of what can very well be a, a, a very reasonable doubt about how power operates in, in the world. So in that sense, it might be kind of useful to think of conspiracy theories as just theories, some of which are kind of reasonable, which kind of generate questions, hypotheses, but don't you know, kind of refrain from coming up with any kind of final conclusion. And when you, when you think about kind of the more extreme versions, then it indeed turns into a conviction that this is the way it is, uh, without kind of allowing further room for kind of challenging those ideas in and of themselves. But it's, that is, that's not kind of a clear distinction, right? But that's, that's, that's really, it's a very good question because it's, it addresses a real problem. Now, I have to look at the authorities. What about timing? <coughs> Can we keep going if uh, we're having fun? Or? <laughs> we didn't say anything about WikiLeaks. Um, I... They did find out, uh, wasn't it about people keeping a whole ton of money offshore in Panama? Wasn't there something about that? Yeah, so, and yet we don't remember, right? So what's that about? I mean, they did find stuff, and yet somehow it gets glossed yeah. over. Yeah, I don't know. There's a whole thing. I've been signaling in WikiLeaks was only the medium. It wasn't the instigator of it. Yeah. It was the medium for it. Yeah. We have a sign that we can have one more round of questions. Is that correct? No One more question. question. I think the lady there was uh, quite thinking for quite a while. So I've worked in the mainstream media for over 20 years and I've interviewed, interviewed quite a lot of um, whistleblowers from different intelligence agencies, all the top ones, yeah, and to talk about their covert operations with government and conspiracy. Yeah? But if I go and I can't get those broadcast, is that a conspiracy? Well, you tell us. Who <laughs> 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 would like to take that one on? <laughs> yes, it's a cons- yes, it's a conspiracy. But you kind of, you know, the world is filled with conspiracies. Uh, you know, many of them are very tiny and small. Some are a bit bigger. Uh, My PhD committee conspired against me a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, on this this note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Uh, Very enjoyable.